So this is part two of the final thinking biblically topic. We wanted to learn to think biblically about divorce, and we covered that last week. This week, we're going to look at remarriage and singleness. We talked about divorce last week, and when we got home, my wife said to me, I thought you were going to mention these two things, two very, very important things, and I uh, completely forgot, so I do want to mention them today regarding divorce. The marriage that you are in now, I don't care if it's your first marriage, your second marriage, your third marriage, your fourth marriage, your seventh marriage, if you're like a Hollywood celebrity. Whatever marriage you are in right now is the marriage that God wants to bless. He doesn't want to bless your first marriage unless it is your first marriage. He doesn't want to bless, let me phrase it this way, a previous marriage. He wants to bless the marriage that you are in now. The second thing that I want to talk about is since we talked about the biblical reasons for divorce, marital infidelity, and abandonment, we also discussed the spirit of abandonment. There's one thing that often comes to mind, particularly on the part of the wives. My husband is the biggest creepazoid you ever met. He beats me. Do I have to stay married to him? Well, even before we address that question, you dial 911. The scriptures are very clear that God raised up governing authorities to deal with the wrongdoer, with the evildoer. Husbands, your wife hits you with the frying pan, you can dial 911. Might be embarrassing, but you can dial 911. Wives in particular, you don't have to put up with pushing and shoving or slapping or hitting or anything from the man who's supposed to lay down his life for you the way Christ laid down his life for the church. You dial 911. I know I, 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 this is the counsel I've given for decades to wives. I know what they generally say. I don't want to take time to go into all that now because we want to cover uh, remarriage and singleness, but if there are questions in your mind about that, about the what-ifs I do that, there are so many different avenues that that could go, we could take up the rest of the time discussing how to handle those things practically. But talk to me afterwards if that is a question in your mind, either a theoretical one, or you know someone, or you yourself are in that situation, and we can discuss all the pros and cons, the ramifications of doing that. But you don't have to put up with that. You shouldn't put up with that. It's not in the abuser's best interests to let him get away with it. He's only emboldened in his abuse when he can sin against the Lord, sin against you, and break the law. He'll only become emboldened and it grows and grows. Best to put a stop to it as soon 
as possible. 911 is your first action. So let's begin looking at remarriage this morning. The basis of remarriage, the basis of marriage as well as remarriage is the unequal yoke or the equal yoke. Here it's in the negative. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Do not be yoked together. The picture is a farmer in our Lord's day and even in some third world countries today where they have ox or some type of cattle pulling a plow and they yoke two of them together. You would never yoke an ox with a horse. You're going to Yoke two mules or two horses or two oxes, oxen together. You're not going to yoke an ox with a mule. It won't pull straight. You want to plow straight, the straight and narrow. You don't want to be going all over the field plowing so you can put grain, seed, into that trough. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Paul uses this farming analogy to paint a picture of pulling straight, pulling in the same direction instead of the stronger animal forcing the other from the direction that it wants to go. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. Paul teaches this as a general principle that can apply to all different areas. It clearly applies to marriage as well. The key passage on remarriage and on singleness would be 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Remarriage for the believer is clearly permitted after the death of a spouse. There's no question about that. In verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. So she is bound to her husband as long as he lives. This is the marriage. The marriage you're in now is the marriage that God wants to bless. But if her husband is dead, then she is free to be married to whom she chooses. So remarriage for the believer is completely permissible after the death of a spouse. Remarriage for the believer is to only be to another believer. This is the unequal yoke or the equal yoke in this case. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. If her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes but only in the Lord. Remarriage is only for the Christian. Marriage and remarriage is only to another believer, not to an unbeliever. That's a clear violation of the New Testament teaching on marriage. The remarriage for the believer is permissible when one is not bound. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but that's not the only time that she is not bound. If the unbelieving 
spouse leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in those cases. So we saw abandonment last week as a legitimate, one of two legitimate grounds for divorce in Scripture. Remarriage, then, is permitted when the wife or husband is not bound. Thus far, it's the death of a spouse or abandonment. The believing spouse is not bound. That's the key there. Are you bound? If not, then you're free to be remarried, but only in the Lord, only to another believer. Remarriage for the believer in cases of adultery, it is permitted. Jesus Christ himself says in Matthew 19, verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. If they divorce and there is no adultery on the part of the spouse, then when they marry, they commit adultery. The opposite is true. If you divorce due to sexual immorality, and we said forgiveness is always the go-to for the believer in Christ. We're to forgive others as God has forgiven us. But if you do divorce due to sexual immorality, perhaps it's persistent and ongoing, and there is no intention on the part of the other individual It's not one and done, but it continues again and again and again. At some point, you may decide you have gone the second mile. You have forgiven seven times 70. And you are permitted to divorce according to the words of Jesus Christ here. And if you marry, you have not committed adultery. You are able to remarry. There is no sin involved. So the death of a spouse, when you're not bound, and even here, in the case of adultery, you are not bound. Why? Because you're free to remarry without committing adultery. Remarriage for the believer is just one option. It's not the only option. It's not like I am now widowed or I am now divorced. I got to run out and get me another husband or wife as soon as possible. Remarriage for the believer is just one option. Paul says in verse 40, but in my opinion, it's his opinion. He's not going to issue a command here. This is his opinion. But my opinion is that she or he, much of what he says in those 40 verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 applies to both the male and the female. Sometimes he addresses she, other times he. My opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And his opinion, he says, I think I also have the Spirit of God. Who would argue that Paul the Apostle, the chosen messenger of Jesus Christ to bring the gospel, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection, to provide salvation through his death on the cross, 
his shed blood to all who would repent and believe, who would think that this chosen messenger's opinion should be simply discarded? My opinion is better than his. Who are you going to listen to, Paul the Apostle or Paul the Johnson? You go with Paul the Apostle. This is his opinion. His opinion trumps mine. It trumps yours. That she would be happier if she remained single, and he thinks that he has the Spirit of God, and of course he did. He authored 13 books of the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit. But remarriage for the believer is just one option, and with that, we then come to singleness. Again, 1 Corinthians 7 is the key passage you want to consider when you look at the subject of singleness. When we look at it, it could be singleness because you are now a widow or widower, your spouse has died, you could be single because your marriage ended in divorce, or you can be single because you've never been married. What we're going to see is that the discussion of singleness will apply to whatever reason that you're single. Now, single is not a six-letter bad word. In our culture, in our society, in our media, it's like single is a bad word. It's not a bad word in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a legitimate word that needs to be considered and understood in light of God's plan for your life. Why wouldn't you remain single? Paul only gives one reason. That's not to say there aren't others. We can find other reasons elsewhere in Scripture, but the one that he cites in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. This is why when writing to the very immoral Corinthian Christians, Greco-Roman culture was very immoral. Married women didn't leave the house. When a man left the house, he would often have the other woman. This was normal and accepted in Greek culture. The Corinthians came out of that culture. Because of those immoralities, and perhaps our society has been in a similar situation or heading that way where we are as immoral, as a culture, not as believers in Christ, we should not be, but as a culture, because of immoralities, each man should have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Now, he doesn't say this stops immorality. Otherwise, there would be no adultery and no divorces for that reason. But he cites this as one potential solution to help with immoralities. So that is one reason to consider not remaining single. Other reasons might be to glorify God. We know Paul will write just three chapters later, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, 
do all to the glory of God. If we are to glorify God in eating and drinking, how much more with our life as either a single person or a married person? If glorifying God applies to the simplest things, why would we ever think that it would not apply to more important things? Paul is using what's called here a popular teaching method, a popular way to argue and make a point. The rabbis did it, Jewish rabbis did it, Greek philosophers did it. It's called an argument from the lesser to the greater. If it's true of the lesser, it's definitely true of the greater. If we were to glorify God in eating and drinking, how much more in every matter that's more important than eating and drinking? Jesus Christ said man's life does not consist of bread alone. Clearly, there's something more than bread to the human life, to the life that we live. If we're to glorify God in eating and drinking, how much more? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul will say, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. That's another reason to either remain single or to be married. Be pleasing to him, glorify him because of immoralities would be a reason that you would not remain single. Singleness is a legitimate option. Paul writes, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Paul was single. There's some people who have this idea that he abandoned his wife and children, and he went out to serve the Lord, forgetting about them. Well, I don't know how they get this idea. All you have to do is read the verses that follow, and we'll see that he was one who had been given the gift of singleness. It's the only thing that makes sense when you read from verses 7 to 8. But he wished that all were even as he was. Can you envision, even for a moment, that Paul would wish that people would choose an illegitimate option, an option that displeases the Lord? That's not Paul the apostle. I mean, he wasn't sinless, we know that. But here, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write those words. It is a legitimate option. Singleness is a choice. If you've never been married, if you're widowed or a widower, or you're divorced, singleness is a leg legitimate option. This is a very important decision, marriage and remarriage, and so all options all legitimate options should be examined. Singleness is a gift from God. Did you ever think about that? What does it say about God? What does James write in James chapter 1? Every good gift and perfect gift. It's not two different kinds of gifts. It's the same gift. Gifts from God are good and perfect. Good describes their intrinsic value. Perfect describes the quality, the perfection, the completeness, the totality of that gift. It can't be improved upon. 
It's not only morally good, it cannot be improved upon. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Jesus Christ said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Here Paul is going to say, singleness is a gift from God. However, each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner, singleness, he had just mentioned singleness in the, earlier in verse 7, one in this manner, singleness, and another in that manner, married or remarried, as the case might be. He says singleness is a gift. If you wanted to translate that word gift a little more fully to bring out the sense that a Corinthian would have gotten when they read that letter, or when they heard it read in the local church, as was the custom in the first century. You would translate that each one, each man, each person has his own gift of grace from God. This is Grace Gospel Church. The church thinks highly of the doctrine of grace that's found in the Bible. Grace is what gives us the beloved Son of God and bestows upon us salvation by grace through faith. This is a gift of grace. Did you ever think about that? Singleness is God's gracious gift to those who are single. To those for whom it would be better if they did not marry or remarry. It is a gift. And it's a gift of grace. I'm going to tell you what the Greek word is just because it sounds like an English word. And you'll get an image in your mind. That word gift is the Greek word charisma. We have the English word charisma. You've heard of, uh, of someone having personal charisma. You're attracted to them. I don't mean romantically, but, oh, wow, I like that person. What a wonderful person. I, I love being around that person. I love hearing that person speak. I, I, I love being at gatherings with them. They're the center of attention, the life of the party sometimes. They have charisma. That's that Greek word. Singleness is that kind of gift. For the right person, it's appealing. It's attractive. They have to have that. But not everyone has this gift. Each one has his own charisma. These are not, this is not a spiritual gift. Five chapters later in 1 Corinthians 12, when he talks about spiritual gifts... He doesn't use the word charisma. He uses a different word. But here, this is a gift from God. Everyone has it, as far as this verse is concerned. To each one. To each one. Each one has this 
gift of grace from God. It's not a gift of punishment. Marriage is not punishment. You know, you've heard of the rings associated with marriage, right? The engagement ring, the wedding ring, the suffering, the boxing ring. No, marriage is not a curse. Marriage is a gracious gift from God. So is singleness, according to the teaching of Scripture. One in this manner, singleness, and another in that. You have one or the other. Can you imagine it's your birthday and the doorbell rings and you open the door and I'm standing there and I say happy birthday to you and then I step aside and say bring it up, bring it up and you see eight big strong guys carrying a big box all wrapped up with a bow bringing it up to your door. Would you say Wow, thank you, and shut the door. I think maybe I'll open that gift next year. No, you'd want to know what's in this big box that takes eight strong men to carry it. You wouldn't wait. You definitely want to know. Here, God has given a gift. Don't you want to know what it is? This is important. It's not a gift that should just be ignored. Say, I'll just ignore that gift and do what I want. Singleness is a gift from God. Think about it like that if you are currently single. That he may have, not that he definitely has, but he may have given you that gift. Now, how to discover what, what gift you have, singleness or marriage? Some of what he says in this passage will help us, give us guidance as to how we ought to look at it, whether or not we have this gift of singleness or the gift of marriage. Singleness is good. It's not bad. Lust is bad, but singleness is good. Paul writes in the very next verse, but I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain as he is. See, it's very clear Paul is not married. He might have been married and Widowed, but he was a young man when he became a Christian. So it's pretty unlikely that he would be widowed when he became a believer. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good. It's not bad. In our culture, in our society, it's like singleness is bad. But it's not. The scripture says singleness is good. It says marriage is good as well. After all, God instituted marriage. Would he institute anything that was bad? No, of course not. So singleness is good. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. He gives permission to marry. He doesn't forbid marriage to any single person. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Consider God's calling in singleness. Later on in the chapter, Paul writes, only as the Lord has assigned to each one the gift, assigned a gift, as God has called each. Now, here's one clue that sometimes helps in recognizing whether you have a gift of singleness or marriage. How has God called you? 
as a single person, called you to salvation as a single person or as a married person. As God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Consider God's calling in singleness. If you are single today for any of the reasons that we talked about, never been married, widowed, or widower, or divorced, consider God's calling. Whether he called you as a single person or as a married person to salvation, we should at least give that some thought. It's something that we have to contemplate. We're going to see in a moment that that calling alone does not dictate whether or not it's permissible to get married or remarried. But it should be considered. It's it's worthwhile. Did God not know what he was doing when he called us to salvation? Was he not, you know, I'm not sure whether Johnson was single or married, but I'm calling him anyways. No, that's not God. God knows everything. So it should at least be considered, is what Paul is trying to get across here. Consider God's sovereignty in singleness. He addresses the individual's brothers, and that includes brothers and sisters. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now that sounds pretty definitive. He's just talking about God's sovereignty there. God enacted a sovereign plan that would include your salvation if you trust in him. And he saved you when there was some condition, singleness or married, in your life. God could have enacted a different plan, but he chose to enact this plan. So consider God's sovereignty that he has worked out a plan He says, remain with God in that condition in which you were called. That sounds pretty definitive until you read the entire chapter. He said, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. But, but if, but if you marry, you have not sinned. You see, Verse 24 alone doesn't give you the complete thought. You should consider your calling. You should consider God's sovereignty in the matter. These are to be taken seriously. They're to be contemplated. They're to be weighed. But if you decide that even though you were called as a single individual, if you decide to marry, you have not sinned. He makes it very clear. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Here's his personal commentary on it. And it's it's factual. I don't know that there's any marriage that has never had some bumps. We all have bumps. Colette and I had 10 years of, not bumps, train wreck. She put up with a lot. She thinks I put up with a lot, but she's wrong. I put, she put up with a lot. The focus of God's calling 
when he calls us out of the world into his marvelous light, out of the darkness of the world and sin into his light and salvation. The focus of that is holiness. Paul brings that out right here. He says, but if you marry, now he could have said, you haven't violated any commandment. He could have said, you haven't acted unrighteously. He could have said, You've, you haven't acted foolishly. Instead, he uses the word sinned. And the opposite of that is holiness. The focus on, on God's calling is holiness. Whether you're single, you are to be holy. Whether you're married, <clears throat> excuse me, you are to be holy. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So the focus, besides his calling, besides his sovereignty, consider holiness. Will you be more holy and glorify God more by your life as a single person or married to someone? So his calling is sovereignty and holiness. These are things to be seriously considered and evaluated when deciding whether to be remarried or remain single. Consider also life circumstances. Concerning virgins, I think that this is good in view of the present distress for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. In view of the present distress, before deciding whether to divorce or before deciding whether to marry or remarry, consider life circumstances. Things aren't getting any better in this world, are they? Or in this country. Doesn't seem that. It's not going to get better till Jesus Christ returns. So that needs to be considered. In view of what's going on, is it wise to be married or is it wise to be single? What has more wisdom to you? It's an individual matter. Paul has his opinion, but it's going to be an individual matter. Consider life circumstances, but also consider your specific circumstances in life. He says this, but I say, brethren, and he's addressing them now as individuals, the time has been shortened. The day of our salvation is sooner than we first believed. He'll write elsewhere. The time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Consider your life's Specific circumstances, the time is shortened. How are we best able to redeem that time for God's glory and serve him? Those who have wives should be as though they have none. He's going to talk about those who do not have a husband or a wife can focus more on serving the Lord than someone who does have a spouse. But here he says, and we'll see that in a moment, but here he says that if you have a spouse, 
You should be as though you have none in terms of the time being shortened and serving God. I would encourage you to read this whole chapter at some point today, this week, to just see the whole flow. When we break it down into slides, we can't put 40 verses on a slide. Can't read it. And even if you could read 40 verses on a slide, you still have to go through it and understand the different aspects of what he's trying to get across in those 40 verses. Here, you can never use your spouse. If you're married this morning, you can never use your spouse as an excuse for not serving God. Maybe you can't serve God as much as a single individual because you do legitimately, according to Scripture, have to give your spouse attention. But you can never use your spouse as an excuse for not serving the Lord. The time has been shortened so that those who have wives should be as though they had none. You can't use your spouse, husband or wife, as an excuse. Whether she's saved or he's saved or one of them is, is unsaved, doesn't matter. You serve the Lord anyways. You may not be able to serve as much, but you serve. If your spouse is a believer, here's a way you can serve a little more than you might think. You serve together. You serve together. And then you're spending time with your spouse as well as serving the Lord. Consider your life's circumstances. Never use your spouse as an excuse for not serving the Lord. And let me add this. As my opinion, as one who thinks he might have a smidge of the Holy Spirit, never use your singleness as an excuse for not serving the Lord. Oh, I can't serve the Lord. I'm so depressed and discouraged over being single. Why doesn't God give me a woman or a man? And then I'd be so much happier and able to serve the Lord. Never use your singleness as an excuse not to serve the Lord. Focus on serving God. Paul writes, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, only the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. Now he clarifies it, how he may please his wife. And his, it doesn't mean that his wife is his only interest. See, I can't serve the Lord. I got to serve my wife. I got to make sure she's happy. I got to give her everything that she wants and keep a smile on her face or make my husband happy, slave in the kitchen to make all those great meals for him. The married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. If you were only to focus on your spouse, you wouldn't have divided interests. What are the divided interests? The spouse and the Lord. That's the divided interests. Focus on serving God. Singleness is to your benefit. You don't hear this from the world, because singleness is a bad word. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, 
The instructions of God's word are never to harm us. God gives us commands and exhortations and instructions because he knows what makes us tick. He created us. He knows how our soul functions best, better than you and I do. Sometimes we think we know more than God. I'd be happier if I were married. I'd be happier if I weren't married too. God knows better. And he gives us instructions so that we will be happiest and glorify him the most in this life. I say this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Singleness allows you to have undistracted devotion to the Lord, undistracted in the sense that you do not have a spouse that you need to share some of that devotion with. All your devotion can go to the Lord. In conclusion, today, will you begin to trust that God knows what he is doing in your life, in your married life or in your single life? God knows what he's doing. We can't instruct God. We can't teach God. He's supposed to instruct and teach us. He definitely knows what he's doing. We're like children. What parents would ever listen to a five-year-old? You know, you don't know what you're doing. We don't listen to a five-year-old. God is so much further above us than parents are to a five-year-old. Trust that God knows what he's doing in your life, whether you're married or single. And today, will you begin to look how God wants to make you more holy in your single life or in your marriage? That's his goal, to make you more holy, more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that all things, Paul writes this in Romans 8, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. The moral image, the moral likeness. God wants us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's only finished, according to John, when we see him. We shall be like him when we see him as he is. But until then, it's the journey to become more and more like Christ. In your singleness and in your marriage, will you begin to look for how God wants to make you more holy, how he wants to polish you so that you shine like a gem or like polished gold or silver, reflecting his image and glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your word, we thank you that no matter what our situation or circumstance in life, it speaks to us where we are at, and it gives us guidance, and it instructs us how to live in a way that will please you. Oh, dear God, would you be pleased to give us a spirit of acceptance? 
to accept and rest and trust in your will for our lives, whether we be single or married. Would you be pleased to do this? Would you be pleased to glorify yourself in us and through us and make us more holy and like your beloved son in our married life or in our single life? We desire to do this so that you might be exalted and that you might be praised and glorified. We ask all this for your name's sake. Amen.